Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Church, with a message titled, The Global and the Local Church. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I know, I know. So many of us are disappointed with the local church. Bad to boring preaching, music that leaves us dissatisfied, programs that are outdated or missing the mark, a lack of relevance, a lack of friendship. I mean, you name it, there are different things that different people just don't like. So let me interject, however. You know, as long as the goal of the local church is to please as many people as possible, I think she's going to please as few people as possible. Either the local church truly brings glory to God in the way that God demands to be glorified, or she becomes irrelevant. Now, please don't think that when I say this, that I think the local church is disappointing. Again, I know, I know. Robert Louis Stevenson, I think it was, that once observed that he had been to church that morning, and remarkably, he wasn't depressed in the afternoon. But in response, I'm going to say this. Many people never neglect the people of God. And that's what's positively shaped their lives. They've worshiped God in the way that is acceptable to God in the local church. They've heard scripture expounded and explained in depth. And they've become lost in something so much greater than themselves. They found lasting meaning and friendships. They've become accountable to others. They've learned to serve and to live their lives for others and not for themselves. And they know that when they have a crisis or when they die, they won't die alone. And that's the church. That is, this is the local church in the way that God designed it to be. And yet, yes, I know there are some who leave the church for good and some have remarked, you know, I can quite easily get along without it. And at least at first it might seem that way. But when they do eventually, although they protest, it isn't so. They won't raise their kids in the faith. They're now establishing the pattern for generations after them. Future generations will know nothing of God. You know, like in the fall of the year, the dying of the light seems almost imperceptible at first, but eventually the deep darkness does settle in. And unless the Lord provides extraordinary mercy, that darkness, darkness of the ways of God, will now be the future of the generations of that family. And I'm saying that the choice to leave the local fellowship is more profound than simply allowing yourself time to go fishing or camping in your weekends. Now, if you've been in a local church and there's never been a serious exposition of Scripture and a hearing of the revelation of God when everything is simply seeker-sensitive and seeker-driven, and you've not come under the discipline of the Word of God, then I guess after you left, I'm going to admit that you can't miss what you never had. It is a sad fact that there are many churches who are no more than, you know, a less than adequate performance band followed by a TED Talk. And yeah, you can get along without that. You won't miss it. But why are so many content with only that? Why did so many churches design their services that way? You know, I love to say that, that there's something that your soul was created for, and that thing is found when a church functions in the way that Christ intended it to do. You know, it's not my aim today to talk about, you know, what are the essential elements of a local church. I'm going to address that further on. But today, 
I want to connect the idea that there is a universal church with the reality of local churches. So how are those two realities connected? You know, is what happens at a local level really a part of that one universal reality? And if so, how? So if you listened to me yesterday, I reiterated that the ancients said that the global church is that it is one holy, universal, and apostolic. Yeah, the global church is one, unified, one people of God throughout the entire earth, known for their repentance from sin, their solidarity with one another, and their commitment to the scripture. And then there's the local church. I mean, some of you who agree with the sentiment that the local church is disappointing might want to make 1 Corinthians 11 verse 18 your favorite Bible verse. There Paul writes to the local church and he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And you might say, I don't just believe it in part, I believe it in whole. See, the problem is that while the scripture speaks of the unity of all believers, the reality on the ground is that it is not so. And here I don't mean disagreements between people. I mean disagreements over doctrine, over what is truth. How can there be one universal church united in the apostolic doctrine when in fact on the ground various denominations testify that we really don't have a global church, just a bunch of different churches who have differing views on things? Notice how different the scripture sounds. Jude verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see what Jude believes? There is one true faith, true for all time, a truth that must be contended for or fought to maintain. Consider the words of 1 Timothy 6.20. Paul writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit The idea is that the apostles commissioned by Jesus left a deposit of truth and future generations don't change the deposit or innovate it or make it acceptable to different cultures. Rather, they guard it, they protect it, they teach it, they disciple people into it. And that's why Ephesians 4 says that there is only one body, only one true church, only one Holy Spirit who inspires holiness, only one faith not differing views of faith. There's only one baptism, only one God and Father. And that's where we get the idea that any local church is not authentic when it varies from that one true faith, the faith of the universal church. So what does that mean? Well, does it mean that every local church agrees on everything with every other local church? Well, no. So can we get specific? And here, I want to make a distinction between a necessary and a sufficient condition. Well, hold it. Don't let your eyes glaze over right now. It really is important, and it really will help us to understand. There's a great difference between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. Necessary conditions are minimal conditions. They're necessary, but not in themselves adequate. The four marks of the universal church from the Council of Constantinople were intended to give necessary, not sufficient marks of the true universal church. Let me say it again. When the church fathers said that the one true church is one, holy, universal, and apostolic, they really did describe the true church. That is, what they described is necessary for the one true church, but it's not sufficient. That is, there's a great deal more that needs to be said. Remember the passage from 2 Timothy 2.19. 
But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now we use that verse to say that only the Lord knows those who truly belong to that one universal church. We might not know the inside workings of the heart and the affections and the true beliefs and, yeah, the the deeply cherished sins of the people in our local church, but the Lord does, and he knows who are his, and the Lord knows that the local church is made up of people who truly believe and those who hide that they're not believers at all. The Lord knows who are his, and we don't. However, the New Testament, especially in Matthew 18, does make it plain that the local church as a part of its mandate to teach and disciple men and women, needs to exercise discipline. When a brother or sister strays into sin, and when they do it publicly, by the way they live and act, and bring disgrace onto the name of Jesus, and it is therefore the response of the local church to discipline. That is to say, local churches need to be as pure as they can be. And I say as pure as they can be because no local church is ever going to be perfect. As we go through this series, I'm going to say more about what makes a local church healthy, but I think I agree with the great preacher Spurgeon. Now, he once said, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it, because the minute you do, your presence will make it imperfect. However, that doesn't mean a local church should be content to be divided and unholy. She must strive to be everything that Christ created her to be. And that gets me back to necessary and sufficient conditions. The true universal church really is one, holy, universal, and apostolic. Any local church that doesn't have those four marks really doesn't belong to the universal church. Therefore, there is but one global and authentic church of Jesus Christ. That one true church has foundational points of unity that hold all true believers together, regardless of culture, race, language, denomination, any local church that doesn't hold to the universal truths of the Christian faith is a sham and a fake. It's like buying one of those old paintings of a master only to discover it was a deception. It was a fake from the beginning. Every day we're so grateful and humbled and how God is blessing this ministry and broadening its reach. We want to share that Back to the Bible Canada has recently eclipsed 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported and tuned in. If you've never visited the YouTube channel before, be sure to check it out at Back to the Bible Canada and consider leaving a comment while you're there. One listener recently wrote, I've been a daily listener to the broadcast for a number of years. I'm especially grateful for Dr. John's teaching that God has used to correct, to guide, and to encourage me in the faith. There are times when it seems like the message is designed exactly for me. For more information or to support Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The universal church of Jesus Christ includes all true believers in Christ and every faithful local church. All who belong to this church are saved by the blood of Christ. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They include both the living and the dead since 
We're one with believers who have gone before us. They include believers both in the Old and New Testament. For the Bible presents Abraham as a man who was justified by faith alone. This one church is expressed in various denominations and in various independent local fellowships. It holds worship services in multitude of different languages. It's found in every culture and among every race of the human family. It's altogether resilient and will accomplish the work that Christ has called it to do. Christ is the head of this great body, which he governs by his word and by his spirit. The unity of this church can't be broken, for Christ prayed that it would not, and the Father has heard the prayer of his Son. We know that authentically Christian local churches are but one local chapter of this amazing phenomenon. We must never forget that our local churches are not alone, but they share a fellowship with all members of the global body of believers, and for that reason, no local church can ever be separatist, imagining they're only doing their activity in their place without a reference to the whole. Faithful local churches find they have a deep solidarity with all that Christ has done. Of course, in saying things that way, I'm not saying that all true believers agree on everything. Now, while I have argued that the true church holds one true gospel, we must sadly admit there are many things of which true believers have and will differ. And here we're helped if we make a distinction again between primary truths, which all genuine believers hold, and secondary truths, which, although very important, do not distract from the gospel of salvation. See, one way of understanding this is to say that we hold all truths of God's Word in three different categories or in three different ways. We hold some of the truths of Scripture in a closed fist. That is, we fight to maintain them. Anyone not holding these truths is not a part of the universal body. So what are these truths? Well, these are the truths that relate to our salvation. Consider the doctrine of the Trinity. If you deny it, you're not a Christian in any way. For the Father planned our salvation, the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Spirit draws us to that salvation. Deny any member of the Trinity, and you deny something essential to our salvation. So what more truths? Well, let me say it again. These are the truths that relate to our salvation. Consider the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, does that sound like a mouthful? So let me simplify it. Penal means penalty. It means that Christ paid the penalty for our sins on his cross. See, I once had a conversation with a pastor who said you know, he couldn't accept that. It seemed wrong for Christ to be penalized for something he didn't do. And my response was simple. Deny that Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and all that's left for you is to pay the penalty for your own sins. Don't you see what's at stake? Any local church that doesn't emphasize the truths of our salvation isn't part of the universal body. Deny that there is but one God and only one God. You're not a part of the one body. Affirm that people can become gods in some sense. You're not a part of the one body. Deny that you're a sinner or deny that you need a savior or fail to emphasize that. You're not a part of the one body. Deny the Trinity. Deny the full humanity and the full deity of the Son. Deny the authority of Scripture. Deny the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Deny that you're justified by faith and by faith alone. Deny the visible return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Deny any of those things and you forfeit your eternal soul. Deny that there awaits us eternal life or eternal damnation. 
and we damn ourselves. Let me add one more item. If we affirm that men and women can be saved while they carry on in sin, unwilling to repent, we also deny something essential. Hebrews 12:14 says that without holiness, no one will see God. Don't you see? The Bible makes this an essential doctrine. Indeed, not only are we forbidden from denying these things, we're ordered to teach and affirm these things and to emphasize them. I had a conversation with someone the other day who told me that someone who had been in church all their lives was completely unfamiliar with the gospel. Christ died for their sins. I mean, whatever church that person attended, and I actually know the denomination of which it was, it's not a part of the universal church. It's a cheap knockoff, not a part of the whole. And so let me say it again. Some truths, all true churches hold with a clenched fist. They'll fight and die to protect and defend and to affirm and to teach and disciple and make sure that the next generation knows it as well. These are the things they emphasize, and that's why that local church exists. Now, secondly, there are some things that we hold with a guarded hand, and we mean that those who disagree with these truths do so at their peril even while we acknowledge that they're still brothers and sisters. See, we're concerned. That's because some errors form a trajectory that when taken to their logical conclusions, lead us to a denial of the gospel. Look, I do know that a great many people don't take errors to their logical conclusion. So some truths, when violated, will not lead them to deny the gospel. So what kind do we mean? So let me suggest some, that God made us male and female, and that he assigned a role with our gender. I know some Christians deny that, and I'm not going to deny that they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm deeply concerned about where that leads. And then finally, there are some truths that we do hold with an open hand. That is, we acknowledge that among believers, you know, faithful Christians, there are disagreement on some matters. We don't mean to say that these things are unimportant, but we do think that the differing views on these matters don't affect one's salvation. There are lots of examples of that third category. Now, let me suggest some easy examples. I'm a historic premillennialist. That is, that's my view of end times. And saying that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge that there are differing views on eschatology. There are dispensational premillennialists. There are amillennialists. And I'm quite happy to explain why I think that my understanding of the Lord's return is biblical, but I've never doubted in the smallest way the full acceptance of those who disagree on these matters as my full brothers and sisters. Are there other examples? Yeah. I'm convinced that baptism should only be administered upon adult confession of faith. I know some who don't understand baptism in that way, but hold to all the truths of salvation. Yeah, do I disagree with them? Profoundly so, but I never doubt their salvation. So let me say this, until Christ returns, the universal church is not going to be perfectly united, but in another sense, we are united. And it's fascinating that the essential truths have held for 2000 years, Christ's body will not be divided on the center. Why does all that matter? Well, the importance of the universal church reminds us that we belong to both the local church as well as the universal church. We're not isolationists. What happens in our local church and what happens on the mission field is of profound interest to all Christians. 
We're not isolationists. We care about the advancement of the gospel in our cities and in our neighborhood, but we also care about the advancement of the gospel in the world. And by the very nature of our faith, we're global. We testify it and we practice it. Our primary loyalty is not to the nations in which we live. Our primary loyalty is to the global universal church of the living Savior. That doesn't mean we're not loyal to the nations in which we live. Of course we are. But that loyalty, however it's expressed, is always subservient to our ultimate loyalty. Every local church needs to demonstrate this universal solidarity to the global church of Jesus. That's how the two are connected. And furthermore, most of us live in a place where there are many different Christian denominations. And regardless of our loyalty to our own denominations, which is only right to be that way. This loyalty is subservient to the one universal body of Christ to which all true believers belong. And so wherever there are faithful and true Christian local churches, Christians will seek to reach out to others, regardless of denominational affiliations. Where it is a true church, there we find brothers and sisters. And even though Christians may differ on some issues, we testify that we hold to the major Christian truths, those central truths. And then finally, we testify that while we seek to be faithful and active in our local church, we also seek to testify that we are one in Christ. There is but one body, and there are many local expressions of that one body. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you a quick question, though it might be a bit complicated, but let me ask you this anyway. Is truth, the truth of the Bible, contextual? Yes, thank you for that. Uh, You know, in some sense, of course, everything is contextual. um, But um, to say that something is only contextual, I think that's where our difficulty lies. Uh, You know, there there are things that are contextually true, but they have a universal truth that is applied at the same time. So, you know, you might say, well, the 10th commandment, I mean, you know, we're not to envy our neighbor's ox and his ass. Well, we don't envy that anymore, but you might envy his Porsche, right? So there is a contextual uh, situation of that 10th command, but there is at the same time a universal application for all peoples at all times. Should we forget that, uh, we are in fact on very dangerous ground. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated. Or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. 
For more information or to give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.